domination. That's the nothing personal word of the day. It is Monday, September 4th, 2023. Yes, it's Labor Day. Yes, many of your favorite shows will not be giving you any new content today. But of course, Matthew Coca and I are here live with much to discuss. Could have started with Deion Sanders, and we're going to talk about him next. But I have to start with what the Braves did. The Atlanta Braves, we are taking them for granted. We are taking their greatness for granted, their depth, their domination. They went into Chavez Ravine and won three or four games this weekend. We told you to watch the series to pay attention to what we thought could happen. Generally, when the home team is playing, that's the Dodgers, you know you haven't been swept since 1906 when they were the Brooklyn Dodgers. That's how long it's been since the Braves swept the Dodgers. It's an LCS preview is what everybody's saying. Players come September, they're paying attention. The Braves are in the middle of a 10-game West Coast trip. At the end of those trips, you're tired, you're ready to get home. The three-city trips are dreadful, actually, because you get into a rhythm, but generally, MLB tries to schedule two-city trips, and three-city trips are just tougher. So they're going into LA, and LA's saying to themselves, we have a chance, very small, to catch Atlanta, but we have to at least split but let's aim for three out of four. Atlanta's ending their trip and they're going in and saying, listen, if we can win three out of four, great, but let's just get out of here with a split. So two totally different perspectives. No matter what your record is, the fact that Atlanta had the best record in baseball doesn't matter. You go to LA, you want to split. Acuna, absolutely paying attention to the MVP race, knows that he's going against bets. It's not as though he and Olsen are not paying attention to Betts and Freeman. There is scoreboard watching. There's individual statistic watching. It's reality. Acuna comes in and has an unbelievable first three games. Hits three home runs. He's stealing bases. He's hitting above 400 for the series going into the fourth game. Betts is having his own great series. Remember, he hit those, he had a couple home runs. The odds for MVP are going back and forth. Bats, Acuna, Bats, Acuna. And three days into the series, the Braves have won all three games. The mentality when you've won the first three of a four-game series, the home team who's lost the first three, they are desperate. The way the Nationals were desperate against the Marlins yesterday and it didn't happen, and the Marlins swept the four-game series on the road, rare to get a four-game sweep on the road. The Dodgers come into that game saying, all right, we got Miller going. Here's the deal, guys. We got to get this one. The Braves go in saying, eh, it'd be great, but they don't have the edge. We can talk all we want, and we do. When you're in the playoffs and you win game one on the road, and you say, all right, let's go for the two-game mini sweep, so we go home up to nothing, but you lose a little edge. We needed one on the road in a seven-game series when you're playing the first two on the road. You got the first one. You feel like, all right, we got it. Don't need it. My view is you go for the jugular. You get it. When you have a chance to sweep, you want it. You try it. But then you say, we're good. The game ends, the Braves lose, and the Braves get to fly home all the way east, which they do after that game and they view what they did as straight domination, straight. Now, one of you 
had a question about this specific series, and I wanted to answer it here on Labor Day. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Samson. So you want to talk to Samson. Get in my Twitter, David P. Samson, or go on davidsampsonpodcast.com, ask a question, and it may make the show. Now, you can't sue me. Copyright, infringement, you'll hear why in a second. Hello, David. Not sure if you will see this question. I did. The Braves dominated the Dodgers this weekend. <laughs> All right, I saw your question, put it in the show, and it became the word of the day. The Braves dominated the Dodgers this weekend, and you said this series was a preview of the NLCS. So does that mean the Braves will win that series? Does the front office of the Dodgers agree with you? Well, thank you for asking that. And the reason why you are the So You Want to Talk to Samson question of the day is I was watching that series and I was looking at the Dodgers, thinking about the playoffs, and I was watching the Brewers and thinking about the playoffs, and I was watching the Phillies and thinking about the playoffs. I was even watching the Cubs and thinking about the playoffs. And all I kept thinking was, wow, the Dodgers are not the second best team in the National League. Now, Ferris Bueller has, he's out on Tommy John, but he pitched in a rehab assignment. I think he pitched two innings on the thought that maybe he has a chance to come back. And when you're on the injured list, you are part of the eligible group who can play in the playoffs if he comes off the, the IL. But I started thinking that the Braves, not only are they dominant over the Dodgers, there's not a team as currently constituted that can even touch them. And while I thought that the Astros would win the World Series, and I thought that the Astros would play the Braves in the World Series, and I still think that, I don't know how anyone gets through the Braves. And the Dodgers leave the series having salvaged the last game of the four-game series. And all they're thinking, even though they won't admit it publicly, we had a conversation like this. Side note, quick conversation. When you are a team that's competing for the playoffs or competing to win your division and you have a tough stretch, you generally have a meeting within your organization, the president, the GM, you may talk to the farm director, you get the owner involved, and you try to do a status report, like an Ed Harris status in Apollo 13. And you go around the room and you're talking about, is this just an anomaly or do we have some holes here that are gonna concern us in October? Because we're thinking about a playoff run and what we need to do, what our rotation is gonna look like, whether or not there should be any changes in the batting order. What do we need to change? Because we are not going to excuse a four game series as not being representative of what a playoff series could be like. Of course, you've got the executives who look at a four game series in August, September and say, not relevant. And we wanna make sure that our media relations department is getting that word out. We want the manager to say that. We want the players to say that. We want it to be when you lose three out of four at home that you say, listen, downplay it. This is not representative at all. This is just a series. And the Dodgers followed the script. After they lost three out of four and they salvaged the fourth game, they all were on message in their talkings to the media. But behind closed doors, that's not really the message. 
The message is when you see a series like just happened this weekend, you look and say, we probably don't have enough. Are there moves that can be made even in September for a player that we can't have on the playoff roster? Is that even worth it? Which is a subject that may come up in today's show. Making a change to your team that you cannot use, a piece that you cannot use come playoff time. Is there something that we need to do with our bullpen? What do we do with Kershaw to make sure that he can give us the maximum number of starts? And is Kershaw the guy who can get it done? So what fascinates me is the time that I used to spend, and I never thought about it while running a team. But looking back on it, the time that I spent manufacturing messages for public consumption, messages for the clubhouse, and then the conversations that were real that I was having with Larry Beinfest or Mike Hill or Dan Jennings, whoever I was talking to at that particular time, and keeping track of what we needed to say versus what we needed to do. Because those concepts rarely are married. They're rarely in sync. So as I look at that series, I can tell you that, to answer your question, the Braves would four, six, nine, we're live. Labor Day, my whole house is sleeping, everyone's partying, barbecues. It was a regular work night last night. Sunday, scaries and everything. Summer coming to an end, fall starting. Does Labor Day mean that where you all are? Where I am, Labor Day means the end of summer. In Florida, it never did. I never knew when Labor Day was in Florida or Memorial Day, but in the Northeast, those are the bookends of summer. And fall is my favorite season. You get the start of football, you get the baseball playoffs, basketball starts. So this means that after today's show, as we head into tomorrow's September 5th show, that is the beginning of the end of the baseball regular season, the final sprint. Love it. So will the Braves win the LCS? That was the question you posed and it got me thinking, the Braves will not win the LCS against the Dodgers. Why? Here's a way to see for you. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But I got a little prediction about the LCS. The Braves will be in it, the Dodgers will not. Everybody looking at that series as a preview, I did also. And then I focused on these four games and I said, mm, nope, wait to see. Dodgers will not make the LCS. I could do a double wait to see here, Coca, but it's so ridiculous that I won't do it. Can I just say, Deion Sanders and the Colorado Buffaloes of Colorado will not be in the national championship game. There is so much excitement around Colorado right now. I've never seen anything like it. Maybe with Kevin Moss when he came up to the Yankees. Maybe that was the type of excitement I saw. I'm not sure that I remember any coach getting a victory or having the amount of pressure heading into game one. Colorado hires primetime. They play their first game and they actually beat TCU 45-42. I think they were three touchdown underdogs. It's a terrific upset. TCU was the runner-up last year to Georgia. TCU lost a bunch of its players, but whatever, they were ranked multi-touchdown favorites. And Deion Sanders and the Colorado Buffaloes and his sons go in and beat them. 
after the game, Deion Sanders gave a press conference where he's already taking receipts, telling all the media members how silly they were not to believe. He brought race into it, talking about how scary it is when a bunch of black men and a black coach have success like this. People get scared. I don't know. My view of the whole situation is I was thinking about the business side of this transaction. And as I was looking around this weekend at interesting stories, I couldn't help but read the front office sports article. And I started digging in my mind about the math of the Deion Sanders signing. So an overview is that Deion Sanders was brought in and was given about $29.5 million as a contract. And the head of Colorado basically said, we don't have the money yet, but I know we'll have it. And I tweeted about this at David P. Sampson over the weekend because I was struck by that fact because it's so misleading. When you have a budget, which every university has, and every company has, a university budget bases its revenue on tuition, gifts, endowment interest, and money that can be used from the endowment for operations or for capital expenditures, expenses, payroll, security, IT, finance, athletics. Each of those departments has its own separate budget. They do their budget and then it rises to the top and you've got a full university budget. The budget is approved inside the front office of the university. There's a president, there's a provost, there's often a COS, a COO, a chief of staff, a chief operating officer. The CFO approves the budget of the full university takes into account all the professional schools. When I was on the board of Yeshiva University, we as a board approved the budget of the university and the budget came to us from different departments, from all the different professional schools. There is no budget that gets approved without understanding how you are going to finance any losses that are projected. You have to have a sources and uses of cash. There is no board that would approve a budget for a coach or an athletic department and say, hey, let's just cross our fingers and hope to die. Let's just hope that we get donations, boosters step up. If not, I guess we just won't pay prime time. It's not how it works. You budget an amount of money that you expect to get from donors as part of a global capital campaign or your annual fund restricted funds, non-restricted funds. The athletics department goes out, gets its boosters to give money. In 2022, Colorado boosters gave 20 million bucks and they released how amazing it is that with prime time there, they raised 28 million bucks and sold out season tickets. Now, 8 million over 20, I'm gonna grant you a 40% increase is a very large increase. They claim they have the 28 million. Do you think that all money that comes into the athletic department goes to Deion Sanders? The money that goes to the athletic department, some of it is restricted to specific sports. There are people who give money and say, hey, I want this for volleyball or water polo or breaststroke. Some say I want this specifically for football. What you do when you're raising money 
when you're the president of a university or an athletic department, the ideal gift is an unrestricted gift, which can go into the president's slush fund. The president's slush fund is full of gifts where the president can dole them out at his, her, or their pleasure. It is against the law when someone gives money specifically for X to not use it for X. So that is why when you are giving money places, they will try to get you to give it to the large bucket versus the small bucket. But let's just pretend that $28 million came into the athletic department and all of it was specifically earmarked for Deion Sanders' contract. Deion Sanders is not being paid $29.5 million a year. So the money that's being given in the current year, if it's all for Deion Sanders, his salary is call it 7 million. I'm making up a number, although Coca could give me the exact number. That means the other $21 million raised has to be held for future years because you can't use it for travel for the Buffaloes. It's gotta be only used for Deion Sanders, which means that I'll bet you dollars to donuts that the overwhelming majority of the dollars brought into Colorado because of the hiring of Deion Sanders were brought in by boosters for the general operation of the athletic department. And I'm not trying to yuck on Colorado's yum. I am merely trying to say that everyone coronating Colorado as the successful football program, one victory in, everyone saying that Colorado is going to be a force to be reckoned with, part of the expanded playoff, Instead of being ranked in the 80s where they started, they're going to be up and ranked in the top 10. He is a candidate for any open NFL job. I saw someone tweet that this weekend. Who's not going to want prime time coaching his NFL team? I would like people to slam on the brakes just a tad. I appreciate more than most recency bias. I appreciate the excitement around the new hire. And I certainly love what happens when you win a game that you weren't supposed to win. I dig it. However, inside a front office, you don't take that win and extrapolate it and say, this is now who we are. You don't evaluate your team differently after game one of a college football season, of an NFL season. Yes, NFL starts this week too. So all of the teams who win, and there'll be 16 of them, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden, look out. I remind you only about the Pirates and other teams who had good starts in Major League Baseball. It's a long season, no matter the sport. So I love that they're selling out season tickets. I'm in on the whole package of Deion Sanders. Great story. But let's just love it for what it is. A week one victory over a ranked opponent in his coaching debut. That's all, folks. All right, when we come back, we're going to review a movie that is likely going to be in my top 10 of the year and is when it ends and is already in my top five. And then we're gonna talk a little bit about what happened in Oakland. I've been a spokesperson for trying to explain the Oakland A's situation, and it has been a crazy situation. And I have a word of advice for people in Oakland. We'll be right back. The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. 
through the first round of the NBA playoffs, it's still all about the Celtics and the Nuggets. Will it be a likely matchup between the two powerhouses for the NBA championship? You can bet on the Celtics to beat the Nuggets at plus 400 or the Nuggets to beat the Celtics at plus 425 right now. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet five bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SAMSON. New customers can bet five bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SAMSON. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Quentin, Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. It is Memorial Day. Nope. Let's do that again, please. Give me a wipe here, Coca, please. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. It's Labor Day, September 4th, 2023. Thank you for joining us. We're live. I watched a movie this weekend, and I'm going to get serious for three minutes, and this is Coca's least favorite part when I do this but it's a movie called Past Lives. Past Lives is a story about two people who they knew each other as kids. They were separated for 12 years after one of them moved to the United States, immigrated to the United States. It's a story of young love that becomes potentially adult love when they reunite. She's married to an American. He is Korean who comes and sees her. It's directed by Celine Song in her directorial debut. And the reason why it's called Past Lives is the concept of the movie is what happens during the course of our life when there is someone who may be our beshert, our destiny, the love of our life. What happens when a path changes? What happens when the time continuum gets rocked just one degree off its current trajectory. And then over time, obviously, that becomes a larger gap. What happens when people make a decision based on where they are versus where they were? What happens when you get reunited with someone who you once loved, and you want to love again, you do love again, but you're not sure if you're loving who they were or who they are? If you have not had that experience, then you're lying. How many times do we go back and look at an old high school girlfriend, an old grade school crush, an old college crush, get reunited in your 30s, 40s, or 50s, dream that that's who they are, who they were, say, hey, let's do this, let's try this. We've all done it. And then reality sets in. And the reality is that as life goes on, we all change. You cannot recapture what was you can only hope to take advantage of what is. Past Lives as a movie articulates this concept in a way that very, very few movies that I've seen does. 
It captured me from minute one until the closing credits. It is beautifully directed, beautifully written, beautifully acted, and it makes you emotional. And the emotion is based on whether or not it's right or wrong to have feelings that you felt continue and then to say goodbye or hello and wonder whether or not what you've said is actually the wrong thing. Past lives, you may wanna check it out. In the background, Coca's yelling in my ear right now, God, your movie taste is horse hockey. No, it's not. This is a great movie. But that is a good reminder. We are 48 hours away. On Wednesday, September 6th, on davidsampsonpodcast.com, we will be unveiling the first of four specialty shirts. Remember the contest that you all entered into. What would be, no, no terms do apply, no purchase necessary. Are we okay, Russ? Did we get that right? The contest about what would be our first specialty shirt, that question will be answered this coming Wednesday when we release a new shirt on davidsampsonpodcast.com. Check out the merch store and do keep sending the pictures. I like the, the most common photo is the drinking coffee in the mug photo, but I do like the active like in the gym shorts photo in the gym. Okay, let's talk about Oakland. We have covered the Oakland A's potential relocation to Las Vegas, every which way but loose. We have given you the back and forth. We've talked about renderings and how ridiculous they are and the hirings and the conversations and the interviews that John Fisher gave and all of the different moments of the president, Cavill, Dave Cavill, and all of the steps. And we've questioned from day one what was going on, whether or not this was all gonna be used to get a better deal in Oakland. And I have been alone on an island in this regard. Something happened over the weekend that rocked my beliefs to the foundation. And I can't tell whether or not this is purposeful or whether or not this is incompetence. The mayor in Oakland, she is qualified, she was voted in, Mayor Shang Tao. Stop going public to complain about John Fisher MLB in the A's. What's your objective? And we talked about how Mayor Tao with a lease extension for the A's would ask to keep the name of the A's. She would ask for an expansion team if the A's are moving to Vegas. And I told you I like it. I like the use of leverage. But I also told you that Doing all of this in public is a surefire way to accomplish none of this. And if you're going public for the sole purpose of protecting yourself politically, furthering yourself politically, or making sure that when the inevitable happens, you have a level of deniability where you can raise your hands to those who were against stadium financing and say, hey, I didn't give in. For those who were in favor of the A's staying and were willing to give as much as you were willing to give, you could say, what more could I do? I can't force people to do a deal. We gave until it hurts and then we gave a little more and still the A's didn't wanna be here. There were many moments during Marlins Stadium during the push to get financing, both under Huizinga, Henry and Jeffrey Loria, where the deal finally happened. There were many times when public officials, including mayors, went public saying things that were not nice about the owners. 
and it did not mean that a deal was not going to happen. The difference is the timeline. When we were fighting with the mayor and with government officials in Miami, we were fighting knowing that we were on the clock, but that the clock was not running out, that we had time for a detente. The A's do not have that kind of time and neither does the city of Oakland. They are so close, right at the edge, which is when deals happen, which is why before this public plan, I thought there was still a chance that the A's would stay in Oakland, that there would be a deal at the last minute because I've mentioned that only when you're hanging off the side of the cliff, when your fingernails are down to the nub and you're about to tumble to your inevitable doom, then the net comes out and the deal's done. But right at the end when you're clinging, it's not public posturing that's going on. It's negotiating privately that's going on. That's when the deal happens. The deal doesn't happen through press avails and public segments, media segments, where you're complaining about the other side. That's like the denouement. The actual end of the story is always done in private. My concern is there's not enough time left anymore. And that now what the mayor's doing is damage control and not deal making. And once the mayor starts doing damage control, because there's no way her advisors have said to her, this is your best way to get the A's to stay in Oakland. Let's give as many interviews as we can. Let's MF the owner in baseball. Let's call out every one of their lies and that's gonna get the deal done. There is no way that's what she's been advised. And if she has, then Oakland as a city has more problems than losing their sports teams. Instead, what I'm afraid is happening is the advisors have correctly said, we are past the point of no return. So now our public plan has to be you explaining to everybody why they're the bad guys, because they already think owners are bad people. They already don't like the commissioner. Now we've got to pile on. I'm sad about it. And the reason I'm sad about it is that baseball never wanted this to happen. Forgetting whether John Fisher tried or didn't try, whether John Fisher wanted to be in Vegas versus Oakland. Forgetting what other owners, either on the relocation committee or in the main owner's room, think about the relocation. The best way to get the 23 votes required for relocation is if there's nothing else to vote on. And right now where we stand, there are not two specific plans that Oakland has submitted for the owners to vote on. Now, owners don't vote when your team is staying and building a stadium, but MLB approves the stadium plan, the design, the financing plan, all of it. Not the owners, the commissioner's office. But that would still be inside the commissioner's office. When you're relocating, the plan has to still be approved by the commissioner's office, the financing plan, the design, 
what the team will look like, the projections in the new city, et cetera, but that gets voted on by owners. If in fact, Oakland, we're not going for 23 votes right now. And they actually were close to getting a deal done to stay in Oakland. If that were the case, you would not be hearing the discourse that you're currently hearing. Instead, what the mayor would be doing is when asked, the mayor's spokesperson would say, the mayor and her staff are continuing to work hard to accomplish their objective of keeping the Oakland A's in Oakland. We will have no further comment until there is something to report. Baseball would leak the fact that there are negotiations, conversations, things happening where there is still an opportunity. However, there's gotta be a final resolution here in the coming weeks and months. That's the message that you give publicly when you wanna make sure that the public sector stays on point, doesn't get distracted, continues their negotiations. That would be the leak from the commissioner's side, if not an outright statement from the commissioner's spokesperson. Meanwhile, Oakland and their front office, President Dave Cavill, owner John Fisher, they would be doing things quietly within the environs of Oakland setting things up for next season, setting up community projects, meeting with different constituencies from the construction standpoint, development standpoint. Those type of things that would be going on gives you the leverage that you need when you leak, hey, we are working just as hard to stay in Oakland as we are to make sure that we have an alternative in case a deal doesn't happen. All of those things that we have thought were going to happen, I am now afraid are not happening. And my fear is a result of what the mayor has been doing publicly. Is there a chance I'm wrong and that my initial belief was right? Yes, but that chance is certainly diminishing. Diminishing like my nothing personal pick of the day record, 121 and 120 after a crappy three loss weekend. Scherzer and the Rangers, he pitched great, but guess what? He couldn't beat the Twins. Couldn't do it. Bullpen, 0 and 1. Harbaugh, Michigan, we got this. They're only favored by 36 points. I'm watching the Michigan game, 23 to nothing at the half. I said, that's great. 23 times two is 46. There's no way that East Carolina is gonna score more than a touchdown. So 46 to seven, we got ourselves a win. We cover the 36. Final score, 30 to three. Give me a break. And then last night is the one that really got my goat. Zach Gallon. You're not winning the Cy Young. Your team is in the middle of a wild card run and you keep crapping the bed. I expected you to beat the Orioles and it didn't happen. So we're 0-3. This next message is brought to all people in the land of 10,000 lakes. To all my friends in Minnesota, at last report, 2.6% of our entire audience is in Minnesota, which is pretty cool. We appreciate that. We also appreciate that you don't like when I pick the twins, you like when I don't pick the twins because then the twins win. Love it, fade me. The 121 and 120 after 241 games, not terrible, 
Not great, though. Tonight, my old friend Pablo Lopez is pitching for the Twins against the Cleveland Guardians in a very cool series. Because guess what happens? Let's check this, Coca. I'm going to check right now just so I, I want to get this exactly right for those of you not watching on Nothing Personal with David Sampson YouTube channel. If you're listening to this, I'm currently looking at the divisional standings where Cleveland is five games back of Minnesota. Tonight, the Guardians start a series against, guess who? The Twins. So if you're the Guardians, what do you do? You go into this series saying to yourself, we've got to sweep this. And what you say is, while it's only a three-game series, we get the Angels after that. Let's win these three. We go to Anaheim, and we're only two off the division. Huge. And we get Lucas Giolito going for us. That great waiver claim. Thank you so much, Artie Moreno of the Anaheim Angels of Los Angeles. Thank you for saving the money and letting us add to our roster, not at the deadline, but at the second deadline. We love you, man. Lopez and the Twins will beat the Guardians tonight. All right, everyone relax. Everyone from Minnesota is despondent right now, and I appreciate that. We'll revisit this tomorrow, but my pick of the day is the Twins over the Guardians, expanding their lead to six and basically shutting the door on Cleveland Guardians' waiver claim strategy. We are under a month away from Major League Baseball playoffs, and I know you know that. I think they start October 3rd with the wild card round. So this would be game two of the wild card series, which you remember is two out of three, three games in a row, three days in a row, no off days. And word came out this weekend that the pitch clock rules that have been used throughout this season that you've heard about, read about, that are arousing success, catapulting Theo to the heavens above baseball. It's been great. Average game time, two, three, nine. It's a miracle on the Hudson. Everyone's happy. Violations are down exactly as Jason Stark predicted. Everyone is used to it, and the games are moving. The union approached the commissioner's office and said, excuse me, we appreciate how fast the games are. Our players love getting home to their families a full 36 minutes earlier. Love getting back to the hotel 36 minutes earlier. Everything's coming up roses. However, come playoff time, that's when our money's made. These are the players talking. We want our players to succeed in the playoffs because that's how they really get paid in free agency because owners are watching the playoffs, even though they say they're not when their team loses. They're watching, they see success, and they say, give me that guy. Give me that guy. So as a result, we would greatly appreciate it if you would do away with the pitch clock situation, we don't want our guys to feel rushed. And if you don't want to do away with it, would you mind just making it more like maybe 30 seconds instead of 20, 25 instead of 15, just something. We want to make sure that we are showing our fans and our sponsors and our owners the best quality we can provide. The commissioner looked at the union and said, NCTP, baby, no chance toilet pants. Now, do you think that the commissioner's office said that we are gonna use the exact same rules that we have had in place for the regular season during the postseason because they want the quality of play to decrease in the playoffs? Because they wanna play two hour and 39 minute games in the playoffs? They don't. Commercial breaks are longer. 
playoff games will be 250 to 305? Because if you're going to have a hit, you got to make it stick. So you cut it down to 305. Why would baseball and the commissioner's office not agree to the change when you know the games are going to be longer in the playoffs anyway? And here's why. It's all about collective bargaining. It's all about the CBA. The commissioners and the owners, the commissioner's office and the owners don't give an inch during the course of an agreement. If it's not written in the document, then you don't get it. And there are people whose job is to make sure that if it's not written in the document, you don't get it. And if you do get something in the document, you only get that and not one second more, not one penny more. There's also people on the labor side who are charged with looking at the documents, who are char- at the bargain, collective bargain agreement, who actually read it, who make sure that every right that a player has is exercised and taken advantage of. Believe me, there have been times when I'm dealing with players and with the union and the union doesn't believe in what they're asking for they're doing it because they have to. There are times when I have demanded something of a player or disciplined a player or done something that is within our right under the CBA, even though I didn't want to, but had to in order to make the union understand that if you want it, negotiate it. Because if you don't get it, you're not getting it. So it was not a surprise to me in the least when it was announced that the pitch clock rules that have been used throughout will continue and be exactly the same in the 2003 postseason. 4 8 69 will be the same as the pit. <laughs> All right, are we good? It's just, no, I'm not going to stop. I still have one more thing I want to talk about. Will be the same as the 2023 season. I could have told you that. It was never a doubt. But look for game times in the playoffs. They'll be a little longer. Now, you may be asking, why can't labor and management just work together to do something that is in both of their best interest? Even if it is sacrificing a right that they bargained for or negotiated for, it doesn't work that way. And not just in baseball, but anytime there's a labor and management situation, anytime there's, there is a union, which is pretty much everywhere these days, Everybody is always thinking about what's next. They're always thinking about the next CBA. All of Rob's thoughts, the commissioner, are based on the new collective bargaining agreement in 2026. He started thinking about it the day the last one was signed. He didn't form the Economic Reform Committee for his health. He's not dealing with all the issues between owners, large market, small market, high revenue, low revenue. For his health, he's doing it to position baseball where it needs to be in the next CBA. That's why the pitch clock rules are staying the same. All right, I wanna end the show with something the Orioles did this weekend, which was a dream come true for the owners of the Marlins. When we told you about waiver day, which was August 31st, and we talked about all the players who went from the Angels to the Guardians and the Yankees to the Reds, et cetera, all the players who were claimed, some of you may have thought that's the end of the waiver period. Not true. You can put players on waivers anytime. And when a player gets claimed, that player has to go to that team and the team who is awarded the claim 
has to pay the money that's owed to the player. Every day there is a report given to every GM of every player who's on waivers and when the waiver claim period expires. You've got till one o'clock on September 4th for the following players. You have to one o'clock on September 5th for the following players. The following players were put on waivers today. Not supposed to be public before waiver day. It certainly was made public. It was announced this weekend that Jorge Lopez was claimed by the Orioles from the Marlins. And many of you said, wow, is he eligible to play for the Orioles in the playoffs? And the answer is no. Playoff rosters were set by August 31st. If you're not in the organization by the 31st, you can't play. So these players who are changing teams now in waiver claims are only going to the teams and are only able to help for the rest of the regular season. So the Marlins put Lopez on waivers saying, God, is there any chance that someone will claim him? We still owe him $600,000 and he absolutely stinks. We acquired him at the deadline, the original trade deadline. It didn't work out. He's terrible. If we can move him along, that would be terrific. Sort of like Lucas Giolito, quite frankly. The Orioles put in a claim on him after the August 31st deadline and they were awarded him even with their record, which is maybe the second or third best record, that means no one above them, which is almost everybody who has a worse record than the Orioles, wanted any part of Lopez. Why would you pay $600,000 for a player that can get you to October, but not through October? Do you think the Orioles are in any danger of not getting to October, the Batista injury notwithstanding? All of you accusing John Angelos of being penurious and the Orioles of not wanting it. That's $600,000 with no chance. And you're saying, oh, that's nothing. That's 600 grand. That's adding to your losses or taking away from your profits. Either way, it's an investment that there's no payoff for. If you're one of the wildcard teams where you're one of the nationally wildcard teams and you're all tied for, there's five teams for two spots or four teams for two spots, I get it, but the Orioles are a lock to make the playoffs. It makes zero sense what they did, and they spent $600,000 in that vein. What a dream for the Marlins as he was packing up his duffel and going back to the team where he was an all-star, trying to recapture the glory. The Marlins and Bruce Sherman looked over at John Angelos and said, thank y'all. It's just business. This is nothing personal.